Hi, I'm Rob Jepson, and my mission is to help sales leaders everywhere create record-setting growth in the companies they lead. I'm here to share the secrets of the world's most successful sales leaders. I don't care how big the company or how big the team, we showcase sales leaders that are taking what the market gives and then some. We feature leaders and teams that are beating their markets, winning at crazy rates, and doing it predictably and sustainably. The Sales Leadership Podcast is brought to you by the Jepson Performance Group. We help sales leaders make how they lead their most defensible competitive advantage. It doesn't matter if you're a new manager, a first-time VP of sales, or a seasoned sales leadership executive. We're all facing new challenges, and if you want someone to talk shop with that sat in your chair, I've got you. If you want to become a legendary leader for the team you lead, hit me up and hit me up soon. Now, get ready for some serious insights from sales leaders that are making it happen. And remember, don't worry, we've got you. Hello and welcome to the Sales Leadership Podcast, where high-growth sales leaders share high-growth practices and tactics. Today, we're joined by Zorian Rotenberg, but I'm just going to call him Z. He's Chief Revenue Officer for Infotelligent. Zorian's a former investment banker and growth equity venture capitalist, now turned SaaS sales leader and CRO. He's led global SaaS teams from $20 to $100 million in revenue, and he's done it with style. He's held key leadership roles in several fast-growing companies, including one that I'm really impressed with, Insight Squared. He's played active roles with many high-growth teams as an investor, as a director, as an advisor. He's helped write many modern sales success stories around scaling global companies, and he is a fantastic sales leader. Now, even during this time of pandemic, Infotelligent is experiencing exciting growth under Z's leadership. He brings a unique blend of practical experience, operational expertise, and understanding of what the role of a sales leader really is. Z's one of those awesome sales leaders I totally enjoy talking to. I love his, his perspective on the job we all face as sales leaders. I've been wanting to get him on the show for a while. I'm pumped to have him join us today. I've been looking forward to bringing this conversation to each of you. Zorian, Z, my man, welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. Rob, thanks so much for having me. I'm, uh, I'm pumped. This, is, uh, this has been a long time coming and I'm excited to get on the phone with you today, on the Zoom with you today and, and, and let's talk some shop. Um, but let's start by making sure that we introduce you the right way to all of our listeners. You've got several thousand people uh, around the world that are going to be listening to you. Why don't you introduce us to Infotelligent, what you do for your customers and kind of where you fit. Great. Thank you. Yes, Infotelligent is a great company. Um, to make it really simple, we're in the same space as ZoomInfo, which uh, went public earlier this year. It's a great company, great product, very much a formidable, formidable competitor of ours, and we have a ton of respect for what they do. Um, so we obviously allow customers to find our customers to find more customers for themselves. It's a great product, um, accurate data with uh, exceptional value. And uh, yeah, we've been growing really rapidly. Uh, and uh, just on a personal front, I'm just humbled and, and honored to be at a great company with great leadership. And we've built an amazing team. And that's the kind of stuff I'm super proud of there. Well, you're in a space that's really important for salespeople and sales leaders. That's one of the things that is, is super important for us to get right. So I'm excited that, A, you guys are having great growth, but B, I'm not surprised. And I think our, our listeners will feel that way when you get done talking to me today. But, <laughs> so let's shift to you for a second, my man. Why don't you tell us your story just kind of at a high level? You've got a killer story. It's a unique one. You know, tell us a little bit about you and, and, and how'd you get into sales? And ultimately, how did that lead you to where you are now? Thank you. You're too kind to, to say that I have a great story. I think the story is um, you know, quite simple like this. I actually um, came to America when I was a kid. I was about 11. Uh, my parents came with about $100 in their pocket to the United States. Um, we came from wow. the former, former Soviet Union, and, and the reason they didn't let, allow you actually to take a lot of money with you. So, you know, it was just one of those typical immigrant stories. Uh, but what I think I learned in retrospect is my superpower happens to be being lucky. <laughs> just for some reason, I, I cannot explain it. A lot of times I found myself very fortunate, very lucky, to be in the right place at the, at the right time. So, yeah, I mean, I um, kind of backtracking really quickly. Uh, I ended up in sales in, a, in an indirect way. Uh, when I went to college, I actually went to uh, get a, a math major and a computer science major, decided to get applied math and computer science as minors, majored in finance, was incredibly lucky. There you go, the superpower. Yeah. I was, uh, inv you know, I got a job at Merrill Lynch Investment Banking in New York. So I did a lot of uh, mergers and acquisitions, um, worked 80 to 100 hours a week, um, you know, building Excel financial models and pitch books and worked on about $100 billion of deals, you know, mergers and, and financings. It was incredible. Uh, then I worked in VC. I got into investing. was also very, very lucky that the VC partnership, Neocarta Ventures, um, gave me a job and trusted me and accepted me there. 
After that, I got really lucky once again. I applied to a couple of business schools and uh, got accepted to Harvard uh, to get my MBA, which was incredible. Uh, again, I thought I was very lucky. Um, and then after that, what I decided is I really wanted to um, – ultimately, I wanted to come back into investing. Uh, but I really wanted to learn how to build and scale companies. Uh, and that's how I got into sales because I spoke to a number of CEOs in high tech who came to HBS or Harvard Business School to speak, and they said, either go build something or sell something. And, you know, that's the, the best way to, to be successful in, uh, in tech. So I didn't really know how to build anything, even though I have a computer science minor, but I wanted to learn how to be, I was like, how do I become in the top 10 or 5% of sell, selling? So that was my mission. Um, and then again, I got really lucky a couple of times. Um, one of the greatest people I ever worked for, uh, this gentleman named Walter Scott, he uh, came through the sales ranks. He's my uh, role model. Uh, he also was born in a very poor context. Um, and then, um, you know, he grew through sales and ran a company called Acronis. He brought me in uh, and we went from 20 million, about, you know, about 19 million to 100 million in three years. And I was working directly from Walter and learning from a legend. He's a real legend. He's uh, ran a couple of companies and delivered a couple of billion in results to his investors. So I would say a lot of what I learned from him um, is really what I use today in scaling. I was also at another company called Veeam Software. Another time I was very lucky. So uh, the CEO brought me in and uh, we also grew from about 18 million to 100 million in three years with 40% EBITDA margins, profitability, give or take. Um, so profitable, hyper growth. Again, learn a lot of the playbook there. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of a, a, a quick summary, if you will, about me, Rob. Yeah, you know, you're funny, man. You have all this history of success that comes, and you always say, got lucky, got lucky. It's just you know, luck. It's just I luck. <laughs> I've been around long enough to know that nobody gets lucky that often. So you've got something there that I'm lear learning to look uh, – I'm excited to learn from today. So so let's dive into that. I love your story. I love where you came from. I love what you've accomplished. Uh, and you've kind of settled in on where you like to really spend your time is helping people scale. Is that fair to say? It is, yep. And so as, as, as you go after the scale thing, you know, I've looked a lot at this. I, I've worked with large companies chasing you know, multiple billions annually. I've, I've helped companies get that first million in ARR. But you know, getting to that 20 mark and then to that 100 million mark, those are totally different things. And to do what you've done like globally and at scale, that's just something that most never ever do. But you have. I'm interested <laughs> in learning about your approach to scale, man. Can, can you start talking about kind of Zorian's playbook for scaling? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'll tell you, um, I do want to say this. There are so many great people out there who have scaled far more than just a hundred million. Uh, I'm a nobody on, on the league table there, but, but, but I was very fortunate and lucky again to learn from some incredibly legendary people. So yeah, let's talk about scaling. And, and what I want to do is um, really tell you the things that are absolute requirements for scaling. And then I'll walk you through what I would say I came up with sort of nine key points um, on how to scale rapidly. And, and the word scale, I want to define, it's not just growing, right? They're two slightly different words. And I want to discern that scaling. Yeah, because scaling is more than just growing. It's kind of disproportionate growth results, right? It's more than just growth. It's disproportionate growth. But there, are, I'll give you my nine key steps in the process of scaling, right? But before then, I think we have to define the foundation. Hey, and to me, that's yeah. Can I interrupt one quote? Please, thing yeah. You, you gave me a great soundbite right there. I want to sit on this for a minute before we get into your steps on how to scale. Totally. Because uh, I think mindset is more important than anything else. I think your mindset drives what you do. Yeah. And, and you just said scaling is more important than just growing. How did you figure that out? That's, that's really interesting. Totally. And, and, and not even more important, but just different, right? There are a lot of companies that grow. You know, I advise a number of companies that some investors come to me to help. And, you know, there are companies that are growing 10% a year really good companies. They're solid, sustainable companies. But the investors, the private equity firm that recently talked to me, they're like, listen, we don't want them to grow 10%. Can you help us figure out how to grow 50% and maybe, maybe even 100, but at least like give us like 50%. Why are we only growing at 10%? And my sort of playbook that I learned from the greats, like at Acronis from Walter Scott, for example, are about really diving in and understanding all the key knobs that you can turn and the levers you can pull and all the, the leakages throughout the entire funnel that can be optimized, but also profitably. So that's where scale can come in, the disproportionate growth. But you got to get a lot of key, key things in place first, right, before you can scale. And before we even get to the nine key steps uh, in that blueprint for scaling, and I'll give you those nine. I, I really want to talk to you about something I think you and I are both passionate about is, is leadership. Let's go. Let's start there. If you don't have great leadership, I learned this a lot. Again, um, 
I learned from Walter first and foremost. He's an incredible leader. Uh, he's like my, my mentor, my godfather in, in business, if you will. Um, but also others, right? Uh, like what I learned at Veeam also going from 20 to 100. And Veeam actually last year closed billion in sales. Um, nice. I left Veeam earlier and they sold for 5 billion this year, uh, earlier this year before COVID struck. Um, but, but what I've learned that is key to every successful company I've been at is, is leadership. If you don't have that, right, you can have a great product, but if you don't have the right leadership, you're going nowhere fast. So let's sit on that, bro. Let's yeah. sit on that. What makes a great leader? So, you know, this is the sales leadership podcast. The people that are listening are sales leaders or people that want to be, um, what, what, what are the things that make you go from leader to great leader, right? I love it. That's a great question. So first of all, um, here's the thing. This is, this, is, this is key. It's all about the people, right? Like Richard Branson said, take care of your people and they will take care of your customers, right? If you don't have, if you're not taking care of your people and it's all about the people, you're not ultimately like in return taking care of your customers. Um, you're, if you think about it, right? Most of the biggest problems in any business they're really kind of, they can be boiled down to people problems, right? And the top priority of any manager or leader is the well-being and success of their people, right? This is really key. Um, and uh, here's the thing. Leadership is not that soft, squishy, fluffy concept. To me, it's actually rock solid. If you don't have those uh, keys, right, as a, as a leader, as a sales leader, you're not going to drive scale. You may grow, but I'm not even sure you're going to grow effectively, right? Um, Why, is let, let's, Why is that? I'll tell you this. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll quote Eisenhower. Um, a lot of times when I see um, leadership problems, right? Eisenhower had this quote that you don't lead by hitting people over the head. That's assault, not leadership. Right? <laughs> you he, don't lead by hitting people over the head. I love that's that. assault, right? Yeah. And he knows about assault because he led the D-Day invasion, right? He was the uh, overarching supreme commander during um, World War II. But uh, he also said that leadership is the art of getting someone to do something that they that they want done, not that you want them to do, right? That you're not forcing them. It's the art of getting them to do it because they want to do it. Make sense? Yeah. And the, the point as a leader and what makes a great leader, right? And what makes a great sales leader is someone exactly who can make the team do something because they ultimately end up wanting to do it. Not because you're threatening or forcing them, right? And a great leader is one who makes the entire team better. Makes the entire team better is key, right? That is the key point. So I actually came up with this like uh, little acronym, S-E-T, set, right? It's three points. Is your team all set? As a leader, did you set your team up for success? And what that stands for is support, energy, and trust. What is support? Uh, there's a concept, um, and when people ask me my leadership style, I, I'd like to, to really hope that um, I somewhat embody a concept of servant leadership, right? And what is servant leadership? Because the word servant is a little bit misleading, um, but really it's about supporting your people. It's adding value at every interaction with your team. A lot of um, managers, you would probably agree, right? This is, this is sales leadership podcast, but a lot of managers, probably ones who initially start out as frontline managers and have never managed before. What they really do, right? They meddle. They, they check in and they check up and they, they interrupt and interject and they want you to send some update, some report uh, that's retrospective, but they're not actually there to add value. And I would argue that a supporting leader that first in the, in the, in the SET, in the, in the, are they all set? Um, you know, triumvirate, right? The support is about asking your people, how can I be helpful? How can I unblock you, right? So Google, they did this project um, internally called Project Oxygen. You can, you know, type it in Google. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's really interesting, that. right? 10 yeah. things that make a good manager. They did some deep dive data-driven research. It's really super interesting. Uh, it's outside of the scope of this conversation, but they like basically did this project where they, uh, you know, kicked out and basically fired all their managers in a virtual environment and said, we don't need managers because Larry Page said like, managers are not needed. People can manage themselves. Turns out you do need managers. You do. And Google brought them back virtually speaking, but read about it. It's interesting, right? For anyone who's listening, <laughs> Project Oxygen, 10 things. And what is it? The key is like, it's, it's a leader who empowers people, results driven, communicates well, and is a good coach and a couple of other things. So that's being supportive. The second thing is energy. Why energy? Energy, that kind of sounds fluffy and squishy, but hear me out. Um, I told you, I was very, again, lucky. This is my superpower is being lucky, right? I met Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett came to Harvard Business School to speak, and I spoke to him for a few minutes, and he gave me some incredible wisdom, right? And I learned about Warren Buffett for many years. I read, like, every bio and every book about him. He hires for three things. That's, like, one of the insights I've learned from him. The only three things he says he hires for are intelligence, integrity, and energy. And energy is, like, the why energy? 
Well, energy is a lot of things, including the hard work and getting things done, right? But energy is more. When you hire people with passion, right, to go above and beyond, to help you build a winning team, right, it's really a powerful force. It sounds squishy, like leadership sounds squishy and fluffy, but it's rock solid. So what does energy have to do with anything here? Well, as a leader, if you can fuel people's passion in their job, you're going to build an, a completely winning team there, right? How do you do that? Tactics, right? We talked about earlier. Tactically, re- simple things, recognition and appreciation. It works. Respect, right? Understanding and having empathy for your people, right? Um, and, and empathy is very important, right? A lot of leaders, um, that's a skill that I also had to work on a lot, right? Communicating with your team. And especially, think about it. Let me give you a dumb example. Like somebody's not performing, right? They're, they're missing their quota, right? Well, how do you empathetically communicate what could be a performance improvement plan? A PIP, right? By the way, I don't like to call it PIP. I don't like to call it PIP because it's not empathetic. Yeah. I call it get well plan, right? <laughs> and communicating with empathy requires this. A good friend of mine who's a CEO of a successful company, he uh, has this phrase, uh, use logic like Spock, but communicate and deliver like Mother Teresa right? And being a good leader and creating that positive energy with positive forward momentum, right? It requires that respect and empathy, right? And uh, skipping forward. Let's hold on for a second, though. Yeah, go ahead. I I, I love what you're doing. So I've shut up and been writing down notes. I've burned up three or four pages already. (laughs) And and so I like this, you know, like, let's get set. I like this idea of how to help your team get set for success. Yeah. And so I think you explained the support part pretty, I think, pretty well. Yeah. Before we move on to energy and then ultimately to trust, I want to just ask a couple questions. Um, When you're providing, how do you know? So we have a lot of leaders that are listening to you right now. And I'm sure every one of them wants to be supportive. I'm sure every one of them wants to create a culture and environment where they provide support. In fact, the data says most of the time managers think they are supportive. They think they're great coaches. They think that they do these things, but the reps come back and say, I don't really feel like I get that much help. Any, anything you can, you can suggest to our leaders, like here's how you know if you really are being perceived as supportive or here are like a couple of things you've got to get right if you're going to create that environment. Absolutely. So technically speaking, what I aim to do is in every one-on-one that I have with either a VP who reports to me or sales director, or even an account executive that I'm um, skip leveling or meeting with and just trying to see how things are going is I always try to ask, how can I be helpful to you? So if you're not asking that question in regular meetings when you're in your one-on-ones, it doesn't matter if you're a CRO or EVP or just a frontline sales manager. If you're not asking or having the mindset and your tip of the spear is how can I be helpful? Which means how do you unblock your team, right? How do you take out the obstacles? How do you help them be the best version of themselves? It could be anything. They may be having a misalignment with someone else on the team or in the, you know, in a department. They're not getting enough either leads or maybe accounts. They're not speaking out because they're afraid. You have to create that trust. We didn't get to trust yet, but once yeah, we'll to get trust, there. I'm going to let yeah. you get there, but you're going to have to. Uh, you got to have to let me dig a little bit because I love this. Please, this, let's this, do it. This framework. And so I, I, what you just said is awesome. I, I like that. You got to ask the question. How can I help you? But I want to go one level deeper. I want to go yeah. one level deeper, my friend. Uh, so I, again, I'm sure a lot of people ask that. How do you get? Like it would seem to me that one of the indicators that people are supported is if they actually take you up on that. If they yes. actually are asking for help. And I would imagine that sometimes people might not feel comfortable asking for help. Maybe like in a skip level, like, oh my gosh, I'm sitting here with Z and you know, I'm an account executive and this is two levels ahead of me or something like that. And, uh, or, you know, or maybe they have a, a problem with their manager and they're afraid to you know, undercut their manager and tell you they need totally. help. Do, how, so that's what I want to learn a little bit more about is, is there anything that you found that helps people like, feel comfortable taking you up on that support and actually letting you be supportive? Because I think all want to be supportive but maybe they hurt themselves along the way and, and, and members of the team don't let them be as supportive as they otherwise could. You know what? It's interesting. That, that ultimately does hit trust, right? Okay. If you have not – so there's several things. I, I'll give you three tactics. One is um, – look, what, several things. You have to have the right mindset, right? So, like, if you don't have that mindset that you want to make your people better by supporting them, if you just want to be a manager who meddles and checks in and checks out and interrupts, you're not going to be able to execute and people are going to be afraid to come to you. Um, not to over, overuse sports quotes, right? But you probably read Bill Walsh, right? Uh, he said that great coaches, take, take care of itself. Yeah. the score takes care of itself. And also Bill Belichick's most prized possession in his gigantic football book library that he donated, find the winning edge, right? You can't even mm-hmm. buy it. It's $500 on eBay. But, but putting that aside, right? Score takes care of itself. Yes, he said great coaches lie awake at night thinking about how to make you better. 
So if you're not kind of waking up in the middle of the night, just at least sometimes thinking about how to make your team better, you don't have that mindset that you need to develop. The other thing is they keep asking, they kept asking Bill Welsh, what keeps you up? And that he always said the well-being and success of my people. I love right? that. And that's what I aspire to. But listen, it's based on trust. And you ask me tactically, here's the deal. If people, you know, you got to first win people's hearts before you win their minds, right? True. You got to establish that uh, perception of, of, of um, or perspective rather that, that they can trust you, right? Through several things. It's your behavior and your actions, right? Actions speak louder than words. We all know that, right? So um, one tactic I would say to use is this, is um, really um, focus on over communicating, not just communicating. Over communicate. By the way, that comes from Patrick Lencioni, the Advantage book. It's a great, That's a great book, book. I'm glad right? you recommended that. Yeah, over communicate. Right? It's not like just say it one time. Consistently say that I want to help. What can I do? Vulnerability environment where you don't have no. Ju- you're not being judged. I'm genuinely here to help. By the way, that's also part of what Patrick Lencioni talks about the organizational health. Right? The organizational health is the absolute key to a company's success. If you don't have that, if you have people uh, being afraid. Um, they don't trust you, et cetera. You're not going to be able to produce those results and people trusting that you can bring help to them. By the way, I right. mentioned trust a few times. You did. But, and I still, I'm still holding off because I've got a lot right, of things I want right. to talk to you about yeah, that. Yeah. I want to get to energy. i got a question for you on energy. So I, I love it. This is a really good framework, you know, how to set your team up for success. This is good. Um, I'm really stoked to sharing this with you because I think this is something everybody listening can use. So you've given us some insight on how to know that you are supportive. E-energy. I've seen some leaders fail because they address energy the wrong way. I loved how you were expressing energy earlier, but I want to talk about one of the mistakes that I see people make, and I want to, I want to get your take on it. Yeah. I think some people try to be a cheerleader too much rather than like an actual helper. Yeah. And, and I think that that blows up in your face if, because I've seen people be seen as non-substantive. You know, they don't have any substance. They aren't really able to help. They, yeah. All they are is a cheerleader on the side. Can you, can you talk a little bit about like, a little bit more about how you know if you're bringing the right kind of energy? Because I think energy is, is super important. But I think it has to be done the right way. You're 100% right. And, and, and the word energy, there are a lot of words that, that mislead um, the thinking into the wrong direction. So it's very important to define that, right? It's like not to sort of digress, but, you know, some people say, like, leadership is different than management. Well, my answer is it depends how you define leadership. I agree with that, by the right? way, yeah. You could be a great manager who's also a great leader, right? But, like, it depends on the definitions. The ultimate um, definition uh, – for, for what I'm really saying or, or kind of clarifying what I'm saying um, in terms of energy, it's the energy is, is the positive forward momentum that drives people's desire to, to help you win, right? And to help themselves win and ultimately the company win and ultimately, you know, customers being, being happy with, with the sales uh, experience, you know, the experience they had with your sales team and ultimately uh, with your company's uh, customer experience. That's the energy. This has nothing to do with being a cheerleader. I'm probably not even a great cheerleader, to be honest. What I mean about That's so energy, good to hear. I'm so <laughs> glad you – no, I'm yeah. just saying because I think a lot of people misinterpret what energy means. That's what I think. Yeah, people's energy, that desire to succeed, right? Um, look, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Bill Belichick, and, and I think you, you respect Bill Belichick quite a great deal as well. I do, yeah. Right? And, and he's not – He's not the, he doesn't, um, he doesn't have the kind of energy that most people think energy uh, is defined as, right? He's not a cheerleader, right? He creates the, the opposite energy. of that. He, he says hardly a word, so, you know? Exactly. But, but his, the way he creates energy on his team, right, is, first of all, this is a whole different conversation. He, he builds the team correctly in a very different way than any other coach because nobody else would miss uh, Brady, uh, Edelman, uh, Malcolm Butler. I can go on and on and on and on. <laughs> but anyway, he, he creates a system and builds a team correctly, but the energy he creates is the energy to win. But listen, part of that is incredible preparation. We can talk about that as well. But, but the key things also is, is the accountability, right? That creates the right energy. And why do I say that? Again, this is another word that people a lot of times misunderstand. Accountability is not just about consequences and getting put on a you know, performance improvement plan and getting fired. Accountability is two sides of the coin. Uh, there is definitely the consequences side, but the far more powerful side of accountability is the positive. It's the responsibility right, that people want as a result of responsibility. So you can't have accountability without responsibility. People want responsibility. They get accountability. And by the way, for good performance, the most important thing of this part of accountability is recognition and appreciation. Listen, there are so many books written about it. 
every great, like, whether it's sports or military, read any great coach. You know, Tom Coughlin earned the right to win. Bill Walsh, Nick Saban, Pete Carroll, uh, Lombardi. It's a consistent theme of recognizing and appreciating, right? Why, are, uh, why is it not used more frequently? And it's not disingenuous, right? It's truly about you're accountable. You've, you've performed at a high level. You should be recognized. And not like rah-rah cheerleading, not like fake artificial BS, right? But the real deal, right? This is about recognizing people's performance. And in sales, it's very easy. There are league tables. They're writing uh, summary emails at the end of the week and suggesting, you know, the, the key people that perform really well on the team. Uh, even the president's club at the end of the day is a way to show recognition and make people feel important. There are so many ways to do that, right? That's all part of building a culture of winning and a culture of accountability. Let me ask you one question. Then I want to get to trust. And then I want to save the rest of our time to talk about the, the final thing that I know you're passionate about. And that's data, data and metrics, which I think is crucial for this conversation. Yeah. And I know we've sat on leadership a long time, but I think this is too good. I didn't want to just blow past it. I wanted to do it justice and dive into it. So thank you for, for sure. letting me dive in. For sure. Um, the last question I have before we'll quickly talk about trust. Uh, you talked about recognition and rewards. I have found in my experience that, you know, the, the fastest way to create energy or, or have it be a passion factor for what you do aren't just rewards they, they expect. It's the unexpected rewards. I found that that gives you energy maybe faster than anything else. Like when they get a deal yes. done and they get a, you know, uh, uh, they get a commission, well, they expected that. You know, if they earn, yes. earn something, they expected it. Can you talk a little bit about unexpected rewards? Have you seen any benefit there? Because I found it's a very inexpensive and easy way for leaders to create energy fast. 100%. In fact, that is probably one of the most powerful things you can do to your people. And why? Listen, there are books about human psychology that we can talk about and study and get master's degrees in, <laughs> yeah. but it works, right? People do like, um, it, it shows appreciation. Listen, um, the most basic fundamentals in human relationships and human psychology, people have a need to be appreciated, right? Whether it's the Maslow's pyramid or I don't know, Dale Carnegie's um, how to make friends and influence people. There's just so much out there and it's a very consistent theme. And appreciation is not just your, your uh, on target earnings and your commissions. It's getting somebody um, a gift uh, sending out an appreciation uh, email to the entire team um, and uh, giving credit to someone in recognition. Absolutely. Okay. Let's move to trust, brother. Hit me on trust. I'll have a question or two, and then we'll save the last few minutes on, on the, this last topic that I know we want to talk about. Yeah, well, listen, very simply. Uh, and I actually, I like the definition of trust from Urban Meyer. Again, not to overuse sports. Um, but listen, three things of trust, right? Character, competence, and connection. And here's the deal. Um, when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to character, that's what Warren Buffett hires for as well is uh, is integrity, right? People got to know you have character, right? Um, in terms of competence, um, if you want to build a winning team, uh, there's this kind of funny phrase like eagles don't take flight lessons from turkeys, right? right? So if you're a turkey, right? If you if you're like a lot of fluff and you're all, all the rah-rah cheerleading, but you don't have the substance, if you can't show your team that you're an exceptional expert in what you're doing, right? If you, if you cannot prove that you've actually scaled companies, um, and by the way, if you haven't, go do it, go figure it out. Uh, geez, email me, I'll be happy to help, right? I like to send the elevator down and help other people for, for no other reason than just to be helpful. Yeah. But um, you, you, really gotta, you really gotta show your competence. Um, and connection, you talked about earlier, actually links to that. The people gotta trust that you were there to help them. You have to do it through human connection. Listen, we are humans, right? People are humans. We're not robots, we're not computers. Right. Um, and that's really important, but you have to want it genuinely and not just in an artificial way. And ultimately, at the end of the results here is with trust, you can actually build a successful culture that, you know, leadership drives culture, which in turn drives behavior, which in turn drives results. Um, the behavior of your people is a reflection of the culture you create. And without that trust, right, if you're not proactive about ensuring that there's trust with your team, that they cannot trust you, forget the culture, forget the good, you know, winning behavior. And certainly forget results. And you're definitely not even going to scale, you know, maybe not even grow. So this is a really good topic. I love trust. It's one of the things that I, I, I believe is misunderstood by many. I, I was hired once to give a speech called how to become a trusted advisor. And I kind of made fun of that title, trusted advisor, because everybody wants to be trusted. And I had everybody in the room write down their top 10 synonyms for trust. And then I put them in groups. And I said, let's see how many of you have the same words of what trust means. And if you got people in groups of five, most of the time, zero people will all have the same word on what trust means. And so I found that the only ways you could develop trust is to be helpful, to be honest, and to be reliable. Those three ways get you started. 
And um, what happens to a team when they have trust, Z? When, when they have trust, what happens versus what happens to those that don't? Fast execution, uh, no, you know, no bad toxic situations. Uh, people are moving fast. Uh, ultimately, they trust that you have their back and that you want to be helpful for them to, success, to be successful. So for a leader listening, is there like one or two things you'd say, hey, make sure you do this so you can build an environment of trust so you can make sure they're all set for success? Totally. I mean, it's a lot of what we talked about, but let me throw another one at you. Yep. It's called the scouting profile. So actually, okay. uh, this private equity firm, I, I want to give a shout out to them, called Parker Gale. Um, they talked about it on, a, on their podcast. Um, and it's basically like in sports, uh, you go out and create a scouting report. So they had all of their managers, and I did this myself, create your own profile and you open it up to your whole team. And it talks about not just like what you like from your people and what you're good at, but your weaknesses and also your triggers. Literally, what triggers me? And I put it on a two-by-two, two, and I handed it out to the whole team. And they now know clearly, and there's trust, that I'm not trying to hide anything, right? I'm being completely vulnerable. Like, I'm not afraid to be vulnerable. I'm telling them what triggers me, what frustrates me, and this is sort of like how to operate with me, right? You do these yeah. things that I like. will be great if you're doing things that, that I find, you know, to be concerning, like toxic behaviors, disrespect for others, uh, bad, you know, communication, et cetera yeah, you're going to trigger me to be a little bit less than happy. So I think that's a tactical way if any manager puts together their scouting profile, the two-by-two, puts it out there to the team, Google Shared Docs, that's a tactical way to establish trust. But then there's all these other things like I talked about earlier, the over-communication of your desire, and those three things, the character, competence, and connection. If you have the right character, if you're competent, and if you make the connection with your team and you have empathy and you care and you show that, if you win their hearts before their minds, right, you will have trust. Okay. We have a few minutes left before I got to wrap this thing. This has gone fast. Time flies by when I'm talking to guys like you, Z, so thank you. <laughs> Thanks. One of your favorite topics, and, and the reason I want to talk about it is I think you do this the right way. One of your favorite topics, I think, addresses one of the biggest mistakes that many leaders use, and it's how you use metrics. It's the use of data. And... Um, you know, I know that reps don't want to just be compared to company averages. I know that reps don't want to be reduced to just a series of numbers. Um, but I also know that if you use metrics the right way, they could be used for mapping uh, pathways into the future rather than just reporting what happened in the past. Yes. Can you spend a little bit of time around what great leaders do in terms of use of metrics? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like you talked about, um, you know, your, one of your favorite topics is using metrics for mapping, right? And kind of using that, you know, we talked about scale. How do you map out the way you're going to scale? How do you create a strategy for scaling? Um, and metrics are key to that, to understanding, you know, either metrics from simple things like your capacity plan and headcount that you need to hit the number, um, to how many leads you need, how many accounts, what's the penetration, what are the conversion rates, but also to measuring your team and uh, coaching and developing your team using as metrics to illuminate the gaps, right? And, uh, you know, for example, for me, I have, you know, listen, I get pedantic about it because I have an applied math minor. So that just says, I, I'm not saying I'm very smart. I'm not. Uh, and I don't ever want to be the smartest person in the room because that means I've hired incorrectly. I agree with that. Too. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I do have passion for numbers. I love numbers. And they're, you know, I look at three buckets, um, which is, uh, you know, the sales activities bucket, which ultimately then lead to the next step, which is your sales pipeline. You know, I'm talking about pipeline inflow, outflow, pipeline history, pipeline mix, et cetera, right? Yeah. Um, and that leads as a leading indicator forward towards your results, right? So if you want to have the right results, and by the way, yes, you're right. A lot of folks report on results metrics, which are retrospective. They look backwards, right? When you look at sales activities and pipeline, those are leading indicators forward, right? And I use that to understand where the gaps are so that it's not like a month too late or a quarter too late, but that I do it in real time and iterate and constantly understand where we are and what should we do, what sort of levers to pull in or knobs to crank um, or what gaps to fill in our funnel, right? So it's not too leaky with my team, uh, with other teams to make sure we hit our number or overachieve it, right? Um, and ultimately, um, so hopefully sort of that covers the, the mapping process. You're right, looking forward. And in terms of looking forward, one of the things we, we wanted to- uh, Can I interrupt? With, yeah, more of time. course, please. How do you use metrics to be inspiring rather than punitive? I think, I think the inspiring part is about, is, is that back to that trust that people know you got their backs and that you're there to help and to develop them, right? To prepare them to be highly successful. The metrics play a role in it, but really what, what the tip of the spear is, is that trust that they have, that you're not using metrics to punish. 
Got it. See, everything is interconnected, right? It's a system of, of gears, right? It's like in, in your engine, right? Everything is interconnected, right? Um, by the way, we talked earlier about something, and I know we will be wrapping up soon. The nine key steps in the process to figure out how to scale or disproportionately grow your results. And metrics play a key part. But let me give you those nine steps because I don't want to uh, shortchange your crowd. Yeah, well, let's, um, hit it. We, let's hit it, man. Let's, let's, let's zip through those. So number one is, first of all, you got to have the right strategy. And strategy is a game plan, right? Plans are nothing, but planning is everything. I'm quoting Eisenhower again. I just read his bio recently, so I have to. But long story short, you got to have the right strategy. You have to ruminate. It's not the piece of paper you write it on. Ruminate of how you're going to do it. That thinking, how all the things interconnect and work together on your sales team to get from point A to point B this quarter or this year. It's critical because otherwise you're not going to execute correctly if you don't have a plan. Um, the second thing is pipeline. Listen, with no pipeline, you will have no results. you got to really put a lot of effort on the pipeline. Third is your processes, right? Define a consistent, repeatable, scalable, right? Repeatable and improvable sales process. The fourth is playbook. you got to have those playbooks, right? Because otherwise you're constantly ad hoc coaching, ad hoc explaining, write down the playbook. The fifth one is you got to have the right sales organization. you got to build the right team. you got to hire A players. you got to know how to do all those things and then create a system like Bill Belichick does where you bring in the players, and within that system, they're extremely successful and work as a team, right? The sixth one is developing your team and developing at scale. It's the individual coaching plan, the, the film reviews, uh, the one-on-ones, right? The seventh is the actual execution, right? Now, now we're sort of rubber hits the road. Precision and accountability in your execution. Now, where do the metrics play? Well, that's the eighth piece, the analyzing of that execution consistently and iteratively, right? It's not like reviewing them in retrospect at the end of the quarter, but every week and maybe even every day, check up on the metrics and see where your leading indicators are falling short so you can quickly get ahead of the problem, right? You got to have the right dashboards and a system for what you're analyzing, how you're analyzing and how to make sense and take the insights, sort of glean insights out of that data because it's not just the numbers. It's not the information or the reports. It's the insights that you have given your sales leadership position to know what to do with that. And the ninth piece is optimizing the weak points and the bottlenecks and all these constraints, right? It's like a factory floor, right? If you read the Yoda production system, um, studied Kaizen, the Japanese concept of continuous improvement, right? It's optimizing consistently based on that data, right? That's based on the execution and everything you've put into the, your system, the inputs. Anyway, I've probably belabored a lot of these points, but I just... No, this is awesome. I'm so excited Z, to talk to you because we think alike, you know? <laughs> Z, you've given a real gift to our leaders. I, I ate the setup for sure. I, I appreciated your approach to sales metrics. Uh, the nine-step plan for scale, I hope everybody wrote it down. I'll, I'll, I'll note those, four, those nine things in the so what portion that I put at the end. We are running up on it. We're out of time here, but I got three questions that I finished everybody with, and I can't wait to hear yours. You ready? Let's do it. Okay, number one, biggest sales leadership problem you see today or sales leadership challenge, and, and how do you beat it? Um, great question. I think, honestly, um, I, I think a lot of reps are not getting the support. We talked about support. Um, that servant leadership and also that that correct coaching on what to do. You, you see that in the tactical emails you get every day from hundreds of reps. You get like emails every week, right? That are they're not really connecting. You put you put them in your delete folder in your trash uh, folder, right? Because the very simple things of how to connect with people, how to lead with empathy, um, how to not be self centric in your selling in your prospecting, for example. Why are sales leaders not coaching that? I think there's really kind of like a gap in. Um, effectively managing and coaching on relationship management and relationship skill set. I see that missing quite a bit today that I didn't see when I got out of college like years ago or, or in investment banking where I learned a lot about relationship management with, with CEOs and executives that are out there. Okay. That is a good one. And I appreciate you drawing that to our attention because that's one that I think is hurting people all over the place. Number two, when you're building teams and you've done a lot of this because you scale globally, when you're hiring people, do you have a favorite interview question or interview concept? And when you, you know, use it or ask it, what is it you're looking for? I do have a couple. Um, and I'm also a big believer that, that um, interviews much more complex than some magical question. In fact, Google also wrote about how uh, they realized that there's no such thing as magical questions. And people could think that these questions exist. They're fooling themselves. But skipping that point for another day. Um, I do have a couple of my favorite. One of them is, what books on sales have you read? When I hire 
uh, junior junior people for selling, right? I'm not talking about senior account executives or, or senior VPs of sales who, who are like on, or directors of sales. Those are very different ones. But but for the junior teams, I like to understand: do they want to be the best? And if you want to be the best, you know, either what books are you reading or who are you following? You know, are you following? Um, which experts are you following? Like, tell me what you've learned from them. If they're not doing it, then I'm like, you must not have passion for, for sales. Why, why are you coming to interview for a sales job? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> really good one. I, I think that's great. And and maybe even the next step is what are you reading right now? Not what did you read, you know, a few years ago, right? So. Um, what I'm reading right now. Um, <laughs> I mean, no, I'm not asking you. That would be a, that would be the extension of your question. So. Oh, oh, got yeah. it. Yep. No, so that but that takes me to the last one. So this is a great way to finish. We have learned that leaders are readers, to your point, and that the, the great leaders, and I love that's the term you used as we started, you know, 45 minutes ago was leaders, you know, the great leaders uh, are what makes companies, sales organizations great. So the leaders quite often are readers. And for our listeners that are working on their leadership journey, you've dropped a lot of books on the show already. Is there a book or maybe two that you would say for your leadership journey, this is one you got to get your hands on? Oh, purely for leadership? Um yeah, I mean, listen, I think I would say this. Uh, read anything uh, written by, uh, by a group called the, the Center of Creative Leadership. There's one um, somebody already mentioned um, on one of your episodes uh, called uh, Leadership and Self-Deception. It's exceptional. I want yeah. everyone on my team to read that one. But cool. they have a lot of other great stuff. Um, I really love a book called Bringing Out the Best in People uh, by Ellen McGinnis. Um, definitely highly recommend The Trillion Dollar Coach by Bill Campbell, who was uh, a coach to Eric Schmidt at Google, to Steve Jobs. Um, it's incredible, incredible. Heck, pick up uh, Win in the Locker Room First by John, John Gordon, The Seven Seas to Build a Winning Team, stuff like that. But, but also, I would say this. Um, read, read some books on human psychology. There are many, right? Uh, because at the end of the day, it's people on your team your customers are people, your board of directors, your investors are people, right? Being able to connect and understand and have that empathy towards people, leading teams, um, all of that is interconnected in, in how to correctly communicate well, bringing out the best in people and understanding uh, people's psychology, right? Z, you're amazing, man. The thing that speaks to me most, you are like this walking encyclopedia. For people that don't <laughs> remember what encyclopedias were, I was raised at a time where there was no Google and you had to like go to the encyclopedia. You, you are an amazing wealth of knowledge. I love no, talking to you, man. Not at all. Not my at favorite all. thing about you is your passion. Your passion for what you do screams loud and clear. And, and I hope that the people that are listening right now, they felt it, they heard it, and they will ask themselves, do I have that same passion that will be contagious with the people that I lead? So, so thank you, man. How do people get more of you? You are too kind. You're, you're too kind. I really appreciate it. I, I just have – I love what I do, and I love working with people that I work with. I appreciate it. And I probably had a lot of coffee this morning. Um, <laughs> well, how do our listeners get more of you? There will, there will likely be people who want to dive into your nine things or your, your set or maybe take you up on the offer to run some scale questions by you. Uh, totally. how, do, how, do your, how do our listeners connect with you, get more of you, learn about Infotelligent, all of that? How do they do that? Super easy. Just LinkedIn. I'm probably the only Zorian uh, with a Z, obviously, uh, Rotenberg you'll find on LinkedIn. Um, hit me up, you know, connect. Um, you can check out my website, Zorian.com. I write about all this stuff a lot. Um, and Infotelligent is Infotelligent.com for anyone in sales, which is probably everyone who listens here. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to help. I love connecting with others. I love being helpful. Um, it, it makes me feel good about myself, I guess, <laughs> just assisting others in their journey. Um, yeah. And, and I, listen, I just wanted to thank you. I think what you're doing is awesome. I love your show. I'm a huge fan. You're doing a great thing for the, for the sales leadership community. It's a one of a kind podcast and I, I'm a huge fan of yours. Well, I just thank want to you. thank you for having me. I appreciate that Zorian. Uh, the Z man, go find him, find him on LinkedIn, go find his website, make sure you follow his advice though. And you set your team up to be success. Uh, when you do, I think that they're going to have that energy that he talked about and they will feel it coming from you in an authentic way. He's helping companies scale around the world. He's happy to help you if you want to talk to him. Uh, Zorian, thank you so much for joining us, my friend, and happy selling. <laughs> you too, Rob. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another So What portion of the Sales Leadership Podcast, where we break down that interview and we ask ourselves, why did that conversation even matter? But first, this podcast is brought to you by the Jepson Performance Group. Listen, companies spend billions each year on sales training, and they spend even more billions on sales tools. Tack on a few more billions on sales process, and we have a massive investment in the sales people. And it is important. It is critical. But what's interesting 
is these same companies that have invested so much in the salespeople invest almost nothing on training managers to be better coaches and training them to be better sales leaders. And that's created a really interesting dilemma because so many studies show that the number one thing managers can do to improve performance is to just be better leaders, do things like provide real coaching. But most managers are never taught how to be a sales leader. They get the job, then they get the team, and then they get the quota, and then they just get left on their own. They turn to metrics. They turn to dashboards. They try to put every rep into the same box rather than help each one become the best version of themselves. So if you're in this boat, or if you just want to find ways to raise your sales leadership game, you need to check out the Jepson Performance Group. Listen, I'm having a blast working with sales leaders looking to raise their game worldwide. Uh, It's been fun helping people create impact they've never created. My program helps leaders in three areas, mindset, skill set, and performance. Uh, Very unique uh, the way we approach it, something I think you'll find fun. And as you prepare for what will most certainly be a new environment in 2021, each sales leader is going to have to adapt. And, And I'm here for you. Whether it's something like joining my Patreon group, Sales Leadership United, or maybe providing fast-track training for your new managers where we compress what would take 12 to 18 months down into three months, or or maybe even a custom executive coaching program, which I'm doing for a lot of people right now, I want to help you create as much impact as possible with the people you lead. So if you want to be legendary, hit me up. How You Lead Matters, let me help you navigate that sales leadership maze, and let's get after it. Now, I had a couple of people recommend Zorian as a guest, and I'm so glad we had the chance to speak on the show. He's an expert at scaling companies, and I love his approach to the sales leadership job. Now, I went back and listened to this one a couple of times, and I learned more every single time. We talk about a lot of things, but as I listened to him, and as I really took notes, um, it was very interesting to me how I was struck by his humility, his commitment to supporting his reps, and most of all, his understanding of what it meant to be a leader. To me, this came across as very authentic and very real. And at a time where empathy has become a buzzword, we just got a great model of what true empathy looks like. So if I was you, I'd go back and take notes on what it means to get your team set. S-E-T. I love that program that he talks about. Support, energy, and trust. Right? He gives you a good primer on each. I don't need to work on those here with you now. But I will say that those three things, support, energy, and trust, they cannot be faked. When they are, they fail. So I really enjoyed this one because it took me, you know, it was really timely because I met with a lot of sales leaders last week. And for whatever reason, this concept of stress and passion came out in almost every conversation I had last week. And I've had this on my mind. And I think that Z really addresses some of the things that are timely right now without even knowing it, which is what made it all the more awesome. So I want to get into this for just a second. In the workplace, every sales rep faces two forces, stress factors and passion factors. So I want you to imagine a scale, like the scales of justice, where on one side, the scale measures stress factors, and on the other side, the scale measures passion factors. This is a really important topic to start considering as a sales leader. Because when I coach sales leaders, I ask them to list all the stress factors associated with the job they can think of. It's usually really easy to do. Things like quota, rejection, objections, nervousness, challenges at home, competitors, regulatory challenges, being detached from your team and everybody working 100% from home. They're only the starting points. The stress factors are very real and they are very easy to identify. And mental health right now is more of an issue than maybe it's ever been because of what's been going on. And so I've seen companies run out of room when they're writing down like the stress factors. I've seen them run out of room really fast, whether it's burning up whiteboards or filling up pads of paper, right? Uh, Stress factors are easy to identify and list. Now, after listing all the stress factors we can, then I usually have them identify the passion factors. These are the things that fire up the members of a team. Now, there's a bunch of usual suspects here as well. Things like helping clients succeed. Achieving personal goals, working as part of a killer team, compensation, and the like. You know, but every company is much different. And more important than that, every rep is much different. And that is super important for you to understand. So what's consistent with every company I work with is that they all have way more stress factors than passion factors. Super important for you to be aware of this as a leader. 
Because as leaders, the more balance you achieve, if you think about those scales of justice, if you can get passion and stress to be fairly balanced, the better the balance, the better the success. Now, if you can get to the point where you have more passion than stress, then you've hit the holy grail. That's when you're going to see success change. That's when you're going to see turnover change. That's when you're going to see a lot of things change. And the real question is, how do you do that? So I can have that conversation with anyone that wants to have it, but let me give you kind of a high level. It is very hard to remove stress factors. Now, a company should do all it can to mitigate stress factors, but it's impossible to move them to remove them all. You know, that's why we call it work when we go to work. Uh, it, it, and it's what we sign up for as a salesperson. So that means we as leaders need to be as intentional as we can be about injecting passion to the workplace because we can't make the stress weigh significantly less. What we have to do is have more passion, and that's the secret to getting balance. So how do we add more passion? You know, this is the question every single sales leader should be asking themselves. You know, the first place is everybody's different, and so that's why individual one-on-ones and understanding the individual is so important. And, and great leaders are able to do this. We need to understand the passion factors for each rep and help amplify these in the lives of each person we lead. And having a great boss is often either a stress factor or a passion factor. And what should be really exciting to you about that concept is that whether you're a stress factor or a passion factor is 100% up to you. So you need to look in the mirror and ask yourself, like for real, are you augmenting stress? Or are you amplifying passion? I challenge you to go back and listen to the conversation with Zorian with the passion stress balance in mind. It made me take different notes. I think it will help you see different things you can do as well. I think it will help create ideas for many of the individuals you lead. Now, here's you know, the one thing that I found is that the easiest way to add passion is unexpected rewards. Do something that they weren't expecting. Show them something you know, that you noticed. Something that shows you get them. It can be as simple as recognition. It might be a small gift of some kind. doesn't matter what it was. It just matters that it was unexpected. Because commissions don't count. Comp doesn't count. Those are actually more often a stress factor because they're, it's most often seen as something they earned, something they got part as part of the deal of working on your team. So you should ask yourself right now, how do I do things that are unexpected? How do I help equip each rep to be the best version of themselves? How do I help them do things they might not have otherwise done? And as I listened to Zorian's approach, I believe he was making sure he was a leader that wasn't a stress factor. But instead, he was an ambassador of the passion factors. So this week, take some time to sketch out your balanced framework of stress factors and passion factors. Being aware of these will help you mitigate stress and amplify passion. It will change a lot of how you look at your role as a leader. And finally, institutions should be involved in minimizing stress factors. But individual leaders should own the way that passion factors are brought to the table. Because you own the one-on-one. Don't ever lose track of the fact that we're all in the inspiration business. Your teams need you and they want you to have a legendary impact on their lives. And honestly, it's easier to do than you think. So Zorian, Z, thanks for joining us today. I love this approach to authentic, humble, supportive, and impactful leadership. There's a reason I've had multiple people recommend him as a guest for the show. And to each of you, our listeners, thank you. I appreciate your support of the show. I want to remind you of my offer to discuss your approach to the one-on-one. If you've been thinking about hitting me up about how you do the one-on-one, stop thinking about it and shoot me a message. This is a no-strings-attached offer, and I truly want to help as many teams as I can. So, here's to helping each rep become the best version of themselves. Take some time this week to add purpose to how you approach your job as a sales leader. Make sure you are adding and amplifying passion factors that exist for each rep. Don't be that manager that works on autopilot. Connect to each rep and make sure you know how you can add passion to their careers. Thanks to each of you for listening. Thanks so much for your support of the show. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate what you've done to help the show grow. And this week, let's make sure that we go out there and become ambassadors of passion. So as always, don't worry, just execute because we got you.